Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, flying through today. We're talking chapter 15. Um, no discussion prompts, but Swim said the mama fishy said, so George is writing in French, which Lady Gregory will translate into English, which Yeats will translate into Irish, which Lady Gregory will translate back into English, and uh, you must now translate your Bergen War and Peace into English. Favourite line was, now I know that what Edward suffered when I altered his play. Finally, some insight, says Tech. Um, so, the challenge today. Uh, I guess this section in French, I'm going to run it through a translator and read it in English, obviously, because no one wants to hear me just you know, mispronounce a 10 minutes worth of French. Uh, and also, none of us speak French, so I think so um <clears throat> yeah um but yeah it's important i guess to note that like swim said it's been translated from french to english to dialect irish to back to english um all right i'm going to have to pause the podcast go ahead and figure out how to do this translation uh and i'll be right back <coughs> All right, I'm back. And here it is, translated. A cavern. Grenier is lying on a bearskin, waking up with a start. Grenier. I heard a noise. Someone passes in the night of the rocks. Diamuid. Diamuid. I scared you. Grenier. No, but what are you bringing me? What are these golden fruits? Diamuid. I bring you apples. I found an apple tree in these moors far away in a desolate valley. This must be the apple tree the shepherd told us about. Look at the fruit. How beautiful are these apples? This must be the apple tree of admirable virtues. The shepherd said so. He gives the branch to Grenier. Grenier, these apples are really beautiful. They look like gold. She slips an apple into her dress. The solitudes of these moors have saved us from any pursuit, isn't it, Damud? Here we are saved. It is loneliness that saves us, and that sacred apple tree the shepherd told us about... But such beautiful apples must be a sign of great misfortune, or perhaps Daimuid a great joy. Daimuid, I hear footsteps. Listen, find your weapons. Daimuid. No, Grenier, you don't hear anything. We are far from any prosecution. We listen, and Daimuid picks up the shield he has thrown on the ground, taking a step forward. Guess, Grenier, someone is passing through the night of the rocks. Who are you? Where are you from? Why do you come here? Enter two young men. First young man. We come from Finn. Daimuid. And you come to kill me, first young man. Yes. Grenier. So you came here as assassins. Why are you looking to kill two lovers? What harm are we? have we done you? We are here in the unknown wars, and if we are not dead, it is because nature saved us. Nature loves lovers and protects them. What did we do to make you come this far to kill us? The second young man. We wanted to be part of Fianna, and we went through all the tests of prowess that we asked of us. First young man, we made arms with Finn's warriors. Second young man, the heavy spear and the light spear, we ran and jumped with them. First young man, we came out of all the tests acclaimed. Diamond, and you have come for the final test. Finn asked you for my head. First young man, before being admitted to Fianna, we must bring Diamond's head to Finn. Grenier, and don't you know that all Fianna and Diamond's friend except Finn? Diamond. They want my head. Well, let them take it if they can. Grania, which of you will attack Daimuid first? First young man, we will both attack him at the same time. Second young man, 
We do not come here to perform feats of arms. Diamond, they're right, Grenier. You don't come here to perform feats of arms. They come here like beasts seeking their prey. They don't care how. They begin to attack. One is more impetuous, impetuous than the other, and he steps forward. Diamond retreats into a narrow passage between the rocks. Suddenly, he wounds his falling opponent. Diamond passes over his body and engages with the other. Soon he throws him to the ground and begins to bind his hands, but the other rises and advances with his sword in his left hand. Diamond gives his dagger to Grenier, leaving the opponent who is on the ground in charge of Grenier. He attacks the other and a few reposts knocks the sword out of his hand. During the fight, Grenier remains seated, the dagger in her hand. Immediately the man having wanted to get up, she stabs him and nonchalantly advances towards Daimuud. Daimuud, don't leave him. Grenier, he is dead. Daimuud, did you kill him? Grenier, yes I killed him. And now, kill this one. They are cowards who would not have dared to attack you one on one. Daimuud, I can't kill a man who is unarmed. Look at him. His gaze confuses me. Yet it was Finn who sent it. Let him go. Grenier, the criminals remain the criminals. He would go back to Finn and tell him we're here, addressing the man. You don't say anything. Turn around so that the shot is more sure. Stand against the rock, the man obeys. Daimuud, in battle, we I have only ever hit my adversary, and I have never hit when he was not on his guard. And when he fell, I often gave him my hand, and I have often torn a scarf to quench the blood from his wounds. He cuts a strip of his garment and ties the, around the young man's arm. Grenier, what will he tell Finn? Daimuud, I give him these golden apples, and Fiana and Finna will know he didn't find them. Yes, I'll give him his, this branch, and Finna will know that I keep my oath. In his hands, the apples... Grenier, sorry. In his hands, the apples will wither. They won't reach Finn. If they are the apples the shepherd told us about, they will disappear like light dust. Daimuud gives the branch. And that's the end of the French bit. Um, and then it continues like this in English. The introduction of French dialogue into the pages of this book breaks the harmony of the English narrative, but there is no help for it. For only by printing my French of Stratford at Bow can I hope to convince the reader that two such literary lunatics as Yeats and myself existed contemporaneously, and in Ireland too, a country not dis- distinguished for its love of letters, the scene in the ravine which follows the scene in the cave was written in the same casual memory of the French language and its literature. We can think, but we cannot think profoundly in a foreign language, and though a sudden sentiment may lift us for a while out of the common rut, we soon fall back and crawl along through the mud till the pen stops. Mine stopped suddenly towards the end of the act, and I wandered out of the reading room, into the veranda, to ponder on my folly in having come to France to write Diamond and Grenier, and to rail against myself for having accepted Yeats's insulting proposal. When my fit of ill-temper had passed away, I admitted that reason would be amenable to the writing of Dermot and Grenier in Irish, but to do that, one would have to know the Irish language, and to learn it, it would be necessary to live in Aran for some years. A vision of what my life would be there rose up, a large bright cottage with chintz curtains and homely oaken furniture, and some three or four impressionist pictures and restless Ocean, my only companion until I knew enough Irish for daily speech, but ten years among the fisher folk might blot out all desire of the literature in me, and even if I didn't, and if I succeeded in acquiring Irish, which was impossible, it would be no nearer to the language spoken by Daimur and Grenier than modern English is to the Beowulf. But 
what is all this nonsense that keeps on drumming in my head about the Irish language and the Anglo-Irish? And I went out of the hotel into the street, convinced that any further association with the Eats would be ruined to me. Lady Gregory feared that I should break up the mould of his mind, but it is he that is breaking up the mould of mine. I must step out of this his way. And as for writing Diamond and Grenier in French, not another line. My folly ends on the scene in my pocket, which I'll keep to remind me of what a damned fool a clever man like Yeats can be when he is in the mood to be a fool. A moment later, it seemed to me that it would be well to write and tell him that I would give the play to, up to him and Lady Gregory to finish. And I would have given him Diamond and Grenier if I had not been one of my Irish subjects at the time. Life without a subject not being easily conceived by me. So I decided to retain it and next day return to England and to Sikert. The pictures of the easels were forgotten and the manuscripts in Victoria Street, so obsessed were we by the thought that while we were teaching, their wet army might be caught in one of Kitchener's wire entanglements and the war be brought to an end. And I remember that very often as I stared at Sickert across the studio, my thoughts would resolve into a prayer that the means might be put into my hands to humiliate this detestable England, this brutal people, a prayer not very likely to be answered, and I wondered at my folly while I prayed. Yet it was answered. Every week letters came to me from South Africa, as they came to every Englishman, Irishman, and Scotchman, and it is not likely that any of these letters contained news that others did not read in their letters or in the newspapers. But soon we, soon after my prayers in Sicker's studio, a letter was put into my hands containing news so terrific that for a long time I sat unable to think, bewildered, holding myself in check, resisting the passion that nearly compelled me to run into the street and cry aloud the plan that an English general had devised. The wet was in the angle formed by the junction of two rivers, and the rivers were in flood. He could go neither back nor forwards, and troops were being marched along either bank of superior officers of every regiment receiving orders, so in my correspondent informed me that firing was not to cease when Dr. When the wet was caught in the triangle and white flag raised. My correspondent said that, and justly, if, that if notice had been given... At the beginning of the war, that quarter would not be asked for, nor given. We might have said this is too horrible and covered our faces, but we should not have been able to charge our generals with treachery. But no such notice had been given, and he reminded me that we were accepting quarter from the Boers at the rate of 800 a day, a murder plot, pure and simple, having nothing in common with the worth of wage by Europeans for many centuries. It must be stopped. A publication will stop it. But is there a newspaper in London that will publish it? One or two were tried, and in vain. And while you dally with me, I cried, Dr. DeWitt and his army may be massacred. Only in Ireland is there any sense of right. And next day in Dublin, I dictated the story... To the editor of the Freeman's Journal, the Times reprinted it, and the editor of a cape paper copies of it from the Times, upon which the military authorities in South Africa disowned and repudiated the plot. If they had not done so, the whole of Cape Colony, as I thought, would be risen against us. And once the plot was repudiated, the Boers were safe, it would be impossible to revive the methods of tambourine on other occasions. The Boers' nation who was saved, and England punished and in her capacious pocket that she loved so well, the war, I reflected, was costing England two million a week, and while the white flag respected it will last some years longer, at the very lowest estimate my publication will cost England two hundred millions. The calculation put an alertness into my step, and I walked forth, believing myself to be the instrument chosen by God, whereby an unswerving, strenuous Protestant people was saved from the designs of the lascivious and corrupt Jew and the stupid machinations of a nail-maker in Birmingham. In a humbler and more forgiving mood, I might have looked upon myself as having saved England from a crime that would have cried shame after her till the end of history. A great delirium of the intellect and the senses had overtaken Englishmen at the time. 
and how far they had wandered from their true selves can be guessed from the fact that the great and good man Kruger, who loved God and his fellow countrymen, was scorned throughout the whole British press. And why? Because he read his Bible, even to the point of ridiculing the reading of the Bible that a Birmingham nail maker beguiled the English people from their true selves. There is great joy in believing oneself to be God's instrument, and it seemed to me as I walked that my mission had ended in England and the exposure of the murder plan and that I had earned my right to France and to my own instinctive friends to the language that should have been mine. And it is while was while thinking that England was now behind me and forever that a presence stemmed together, or rather seemed to follow me as I went towards Chelsea. The first sensation was thin, but it deepened at every moment, and when I entered the hospital road, I did not dare look behind me, yet not for fear lest my eyes should be seeing something they had never seen before, something not of this world, and walking in a devout collectedness, I have heard a voice speaking within me, no whispering thought it was, but a resolute voice saying, go to Ireland. The words were so distinct and clear that it could I could not turn to look. Nobody was within my many yards of me. I walked on, but had not taken many steps before I had heard the voice again. Order your manuscripts and your pictures and your furniture to be packed at once and go to Ireland. Of this I am sure, that the words, go to Ireland, did not come from within, but from without. The minutes passed by, and I waited to hear the voices again, but I could hear nothing except my own thoughts telling me that no Messiah had been found by me at the dinner at the Shelbourne Hotel, because the Messiah Ireland was waiting for was in me, and not in another. So the summons has come, I said, the summons has come, and I walked greatly shaken in my mind, feeling that it would be impossible for me to keep my appointment with the lady who had asked me to tea that evening, that to chatter with her about indifferent things would be impossible, and I returned to Victoria Street, unable to think of anything that the voice that had spoken to me, its tone, its timbre, lingered in my ear through the day and the next, and for many days my recollection did not seem to grow weaker. All the same, I remained doubtful, and at all events, unconvinced of the authenticity of the summons that I had received. It was hard to abandon my project of going to live in my own country, which was France, and I said to myself, if the summons be a real one, and no delusion of the senses, it will be repeated next morning, as I lay between sleeping and waking, I heard the words, go to Ireland, go to Ireland, repeated by the same voice, and this time it was close by me, speaking into my ear. It seemed to speak within five or six inches, and it was so clear and distinct that I put out my hand to detain the speaker. The same voice, I said to myself the same words, only this time the words were repeated twice. When I hear them again, they will be repeated three times, and I shall know. But our experience in life never enables us to divine what our destiny will be, nor the manner in which it will be revealed to us. The voice was not heard again, but a few weeks afterwards, in my drawing-room, the presence seemed to fill the room, overpowering me, and, though I strove to resist it, in the end it forced me upon my knees. A prayer was put into my mouth, and I prayed, but to whom I prayed, I do not know, only that I was conscious of a presence about me, and that I prayed. Doubt was no longer possible. I had been summoned to Ireland. Tonks collected some friends to dinner. Steer and Sickert were among the company and it was pointed out to me that no man could break up his life as I proposed to break up mine with impunity. It is no use, nothing that you can say will change me. My manner must have impressed them, for they must have felt that my departure was decreed by some unseen authority, and that no doubt the Boer War had made any further stay in England impossible to me. And that is the end of not only the chapter, but the first book in this trilogy.
So, I can see that the next chapter is called Salve, Chapter 1. So, there's a bit of a milestone for us. Well done, everybody. End of Book 1. I guess in our discussion prompts today, we'll reflect on Book 1 and how we all liked it. All right. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.